Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. First up, a fascinating story. In 1996, two teenagers in the state of Georgia in the United States were convicted of murder. After new evidence emerged, thanks to a true crime podcast called Proof, the two men have been released from prison after 25 years. Joining me now is Jacinda Davis, co-host of the Proof podcast, and Lee, who was freed last Thursday after spending 25 years in jail for a crime that he did not commit. Jacinda, I'll start with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So tell me, how did you come to hear about Lee and Story's story and, and, and what made you pick it up? Well, it's funny because Susan Simpson, my co-host, um, had been working on another case out of Georgia, the case of Joey Watkins. Um, and she did a, a, she did a season of the Undisclosed podcast on him. And mm. it was Joey, who's in the same prison as Lee, who said, Susan, if you think my case is crazy, you should talk to my friend Lee. And that's how it all got started. And what was it like to to gather evidence? How did you know that you had a case here? How did you know to believe the guys? What was the work like? Well, you know, at first you don't. You, you, you hear what they have to say. You hear their sides of the story. And then our job as podcasters, investigative podcasters, is to go out into the field, collect, you know, talk to as many people as we can, interview witnesses, um, request files and documents and just, you know, do all the groundwork to see what kind of evidence we can uncover. And in this case, it became clear fairly fairly quickly that, you know, both Lee and Kane were innocent of the crimes they had been convicted of. Can you tell us, for people who haven't heard the podcast, the general story of, of first of all, what they had been accused of and then what you came to realise? Sure. Um, the story, you know, it's 1996, and the victim in this case, his name is Brian Bowling. He's 15 years old. And he and Joshua Kane's story were in the bedroom of his parents' trailer home in, in Georgia, in Floyd County, Georgia. And they were on the phone with Brian's girlfriend, and she heard them say that, she heard Brian say they were playing Russian roulette. And then a gunshot went off. Um, initially, Brian, you know, it was ruled an accident. Brian had been shot in the head. It was ruled an accident, a self-inflicted gunshot wound, um, a tragic story of Russian roulette gone wrong. Um, and within days, that had changed to it being, um, you know, Kane who did it. And then within, I think Lee was um, arrested a few months later, had turned into a conspiracy to commit murder. Um, and it, it just, spiraled from there. What were the pieces of evidence that that they found that obviously were not evidence that made it change from Russian roulette gone wrong to these two guys committed this crime and it was a conspiracy of murder? Like who who started talking and where did the lie come from, I guess? Well, that's the, that's the question, right? How did it go from a tragic accident to conspiracy to commit murder? Um, they did do a gunshot residue test on, on Kane's hands, which came back negative. But I think there was pressure to, there was pressure from family and friends and outside sources to investigate this case as something more than an accident. 
And the police found two witnesses. One was a woman who had had a party several months later and claimed that Kane and Lee were at her house and confessed and even bragged about killing Brian because he had information that he was going to share about the robbery of a theft. Kane, Kane and Lee and some friends had stolen her, his father's safe a few weeks earlier. Um, they had confessed. The police knew about it. So the fact that they would kill someone over this just made no sense to us. And we, in fact, found that witness and talked to her and discovered that she was threatened by detectives to, to say what she said in court, um, that if she didn't say what they wanted, her children would be taken away from her. So that was one of the big pieces of evidence that um, was used to file the motion for a new trial. Okay. The second witness... Yeah, sorry, go on, oh, continue. Sorry, go ahead. No, you continue. The second witness we were able, okay. The set, the second witness we were able to talk to was a man who was at the trailer that night. But he, he, he is deaf and has trouble communicating. He wasn't taught standard sign language, American sign language. He has home signs, and he, through, the detectives interviewed him and said that he indicated that he saw Lee Clark that night through the window moments after the gun was fired, and that he picked him out of the lineup. And that's how Lee got involved. So the two witnesses, the the party hostess and and this um, witness who was at the trailer, they put Lee at the scene that night. When we talked to Charlie um, through an interpreter who knew him as a child and knew how to communicate with him, what we discovered is that Charlie never saw anyone that night at the trailer. I Like, there's just so many issues here. First of all, the fact that and and I listen, I love true crime podcasts. I've listened to yours. I've listened to so many of them. The fact that this keeps happening, that we hear, first of all, this party host woman, that people are threatened and coerced by police into giving false statements is so alarming. And secondly, that even if this woman wasn't threatened and that was the case, it's absolute hearsay. And these two men have been in prison for 25 years based on based on I, uh, party hosts saying, oh, I think I overheard something. How is this allowed to happen in the States and why is it so prolific? You know, I don't know that it's unique to the States. Um, but I, And we look at cases on a case-by-case basis. And in this case, there was obviously procedural misconduct. Um, how that was allowed to happen or why that happened, I don't know. But I do think there needs to be protocols in place to prevent stuff like this from happening. Um, and you're right, you know, these two men spent 25 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. They they went in when they were 17. They, they have spent more time in prison than they have outside. It's, I mean, it's just such a gross injustice. Is there, um, I'll, I'll, I'll come to Lee now, but wh- when you started working on the podcast and you started gathering evidence, what what was the moment that you realized, I think that we have something here that can get this overturned? There were so many things, frankly, when we, when we were talking to people. I think for us, finding the party hostess, um, finding Charlie, it took us a long time. If you listen to the podcast, you can, it, it, you know, the podcast is a real-time investigation. We're looking for Charlie. We don't find him until like week six or seven mm-hmm. or eight, maybe. Um, but when we finally talked to those two witnesses, we knew we knew this was too big to ignore. Um, the other thing I think that happened in this case that's very unique in wrongful conviction cases is that the victim's family, Brian Bowling's family, 
were very open and willing to talk to us. At the beginning of the podcast, they believed in Lee and Kane's guilt. It's, it's what they had been told. It's what they had believed for the last 25 years. But they had questions. And they were willing to talk to us and, and go with us on this road of discovery. And by the end of the podcast, they too had changed their minds and were petitioning to get Lee and Kane released. And I think without their support, I'm not sure we would be where we are today. That's incredible. And Lee, you are with us as well. Um, how do you feel nearly a week? How do you feel now? Oh, I, I feel uh, I feel good. I mean, I'm I'm happy. I'm just uh, shocked at the way the world has changed. 25 years ago when I went in, it it was more simple back then. Yeah, I... I, I, just, I uh, I hear that you uh, you didn't uh, you'd never used an iPhone before. No, I have a look. Uh, these phones here is like an alien technology to me. And is there any? Su- I've been trying to figure this thing out. Do you get any support to reintegrate yourself into society to learn about new technology and the things that you have missed? Oh yeah, I've got a big family, and I've uh, I've got some cousins. My cousin Natalie, she's a she's a whiz on this thing. She set my Facebook up in like two minutes. <laughs> I didn't couldn't even figure it out. She had it up and running, just punching all kind of things. I said, God, why are you burning that thing up, ain't you? <laughs> and how did you man? How did you cope in prison, knowing that you were innocent? Well, uh, I tell you, when I first got locked up, is a uh, it wasn't easy, easy for me coping in there. I'd, uh, I was at some really rough prisons in there with some hardcore murderers and wouldn't, just no uh, no compassion. They were just taking advantage of people, killing people, and I was I was really struggling for that. I, I, for a long time, I didn't think I was going to live to make it out of prison. Some of the prisons I started out in, and I'm just... Uh, I'm thankful that God gave me the strength to make it. What was it like when the podcast hosts approached you and took on your story? Did you have hope or were you not trying not to get too excited? Well, originally when I just when I first started talking to Susan, I I thought it was just going to be that it was going to wind up they were going to go out there doing their thing and it was just going everybody they talked to was just going to be sticking to the same lies they were they were telling and Nothing was ever going to come of it. I mean, it's what I felt like because I was getting to the point that I didn't want to lose hope. I was trying to hold on to it, but it was it was starting to just slip away from me. I'd been in so long. and But uh, when things started coming together, when I started seeing some really progress, and I, and I, and I really, I really st- didn't start feeling really good about it until deep into the podcast when uh, when they spoke to Angela Bruce. And to hear that she was finally telling the truth and for her to apologize like she did, that that broke me down something bad. And it, it was like a, a boulder that had been crushing me for 25 years. It finally rolled off my back. And then uh, I think I think the biggest thing of all, though, is when Michael Baker and Amanda Floyd had finally come to know the truth. And they had reached out to my dad and me. And that right there, that was precious to me. It really was uh, for Amanda to, to finally know that I didn't have anything to do with her brother's death. I didn't, I didn't ever hurt a brother. And for her to know that stuff, it meant a whole lot to me. It really did. 
It's incredible. And what are you planning to do for your first Christmas as a as a free man since you were 17? Oh, uh, well, we got a big family and we finna throw down. <laughs> yeah, we finna throw down. We finna have us a good Christmas. I wish you the happiest Christmas, Lee. And I'll come back to you, Jacinda. Uh, do you have uh, any plans to take on other cases or what are you working on now? We have a season two in the works that will launch in April of 2023. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations, Lee. And, you know, uh, I, I, you're just so strong uh, to, to have come through what you've come through. And Jacinda and Susan, uh, congratulations on your hard work and, and the fabulous podcast. That is uh, the Proof podcast for anyone who wants to listen to it. Um, I mean, we've given you a big spoiler now, but it's definitely one worth listening to. Thank you, guys. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 p.m. On News Talk.